Our psalm this morning is Psalm 139, to the leader of David, a psalm. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, oh Lord, you know it completely, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's so high, I cannot attain it. For it was you who formed my inner parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, that I know very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes beheld my unformed substance. In your book were written all the days that were formed for me when none of them yet existed. How weighty to me are your thoughts, O oh God! How vast is the sum of them! I try to count them. They're more than the sand. I come to the end. I'm still with you. The Gospel reading is taken from John 1, reading verses 43 to 51. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we've found him about whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. When Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him, he said of him, here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael asked him, where did you come to know me? Jesus answered, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. Nathanael said, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered, Do you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree? You'll see greater things than these. And he said to him, Very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Thanks be to God for these words. Amen. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts and meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. So in our lectionary calendar, we once again start a new year with the readings from the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It almost seems like 
the lectionary authors knew what they were doing when they gave us a collection of readings for each day of the year. Although if you're a preacher, you might disagree with this, especially as next week's readings are weirdly similar to this week's. Anyway, this week's we have John's account of Jesus calling his first disciples. The sermons I have heard on Jesus calling his first disciples usually have a message of how the members of the church need to go out and do more evangelism. Go out and bring more people into church and grow our little communities of disciples. But if you're like me, as soon as you hear the word evangelism, you either stop listening or you run for the hills. Maybe you'll turn your computer off, I'm not sure. I think this is partly because the word evangelical has become a bit of a dirty word, synonymous with Trumpism and judgment of people who don't fit into our understanding of who God is. But I think we misunderstand what evangelism really is. So I'd like to offer you a a description of what I think evangelism is and what it is not. Evangelism is not simply maintaining or growing or expanding the institution that is the church. But let me quickly add, that doesn't mean that the institution isn't important. As a church, we function as an institution, as an organisation. That may not be the essence of who we are or what we're about, but we do exist as an institution. And there's something to be said about maintaining and growing the church's institution. But that's not what evangelism is. But it has its place. So if our institution is a viable, helpful, enriching and life-affirming institution, then maintaining and growing the church has an important place. But that's not evangelism. If our sole purpose is to grow the institution, we cannot really love the people with whom we want to share the gospel of Jesus. And if God is love, then love has to be our raison d'etre. Unfortunately, I think that for most of our recent history anyway, our understanding of evangelism has been mainly about getting more people to come to church. And this is usually because we either need the money or we need more people to do the jobs we're getting too old and tired to do ourselves. Maybe I'm being a little cynical, but I think I'm in good company. Nathaniel, in our gospel story today is wonderfully sarcastic and snarky. When he hears about Jesus, he says, can anything good come, come out of Nazareth? But when he meets him, he says, here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. You see, I don't think Jesus has an ulterior motive. I don't think he's trying to grow the church. Like sometimes you know, we have ulterior motives. And I think Nathaniel recognised that. And Jesus was really weird for his day. And I suppose he's a, he's a little weird now, too. You see, in Jesus' day, a rabbi didn't work like that. They didn't go around searching for people to become their disciples or followers. 
And they especially didn't choose people, the people whom Jesus chose. You see, in first century Judaism, there was a very extensive process of a man would go through in order to become a follower of a rabbi. And yes, it was men. Uh, Children in many parts of Palestine would start studying with a community rabbi in a local synagogue at the young age of about four or five years old. And during this time of public education, young boys, and possibly in places, young girls, would mostly study the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. By the time these boys and girls finished this level of education, which ended probably around the age of 10, most of the children would have been expected to have memorized the entire Torah. It's amazing. After this, many of the boys, and most definitely the girls, would stay home and participate in housekeeping or start to learn their family trade. But the top students coming out of this level of education would continue to the next level, where they would start to learn different interpretations of the scriptures and the oral traditions, and they will continue to memorize more scripture. Most boys would finish this level by the time they were about 14 or 15 years old, having memorized the rest of the Hebrew scriptures. Can you imagine that? I struggled with one or two memory verses when we we had to learn in junior church, but hey. At this point in the young person's life, the majority of boys would leave and go on to learning their family trade too, if they'd not already started to do so. So the top students among these already top students would go on to study at the next level. And these students would seek out the top rabbi, the rabbi whom they wished to study under. And they asked him and applied to him to see if they could follow him. The rabbi would then decide whether or not this young man was knowledgeable and adequate enough to trust them and fully take upon his yoke or his particular interpretation of scripture. And then they'd eventually pass that yoke on to others when they became their own when they became teachers themselves. In many cases, the students would be turned down by the rabbis and they would have to seek out another rabbi or find a whole different trade to go into. So this is why Jesus is weird. Here we have a rabbi who seeks people out who didn't make the grade. Here we have a rabbi who seeks ordinary, everyday people to follow him. And here we have a rabbi who doesn't choose those who agree with him and each other. For example, he chooses a tax collector and a zealot, two people who should and did murderously hate each other. So it's no wonder Nathaniel was a little bit sceptical. I think I would be too. So with this in mind, let me offer up a definition of what I think evangelism is. That is it, if it's not about growing the institution that is the church. My very simple definition of evangelism is just helping people discover 
who they are. And who are they? They're the same people as we are, the children of God. They are children of God. We are children of God, even if we don't know it yet. And if evangelism is helping people discover who they are, then discipleship is about helping people become who they are. Back in uh, 1996, in his book, The Rise of Christianity, Rodney Stark, a specialist in the, in sociology, the sociology of modern religion, applies his methods to ancient Christianity. He discovered in his research that Christianity spread at a rate of about 40% per decade, and this held steady over several decades. And he discovered, too, that people came to Christianity not primarily because they experienced a vibrant worship or were hearing great sermons. And it wasn't logic or compelling arguments that reached them. Rather, they entered into Christian faith through loving relationships. Because Christians looked out for one another. They took care of the poor and the sick and the most vulnerable They valued the gifts and contributions of each member, even widows and orphans, the most vulnerable and disadvantaged people at the time. And people took notice. Christianity didn't start off as a a holy huddle living within an echo chamber of beliefs and philosophies. It was a community of unconditional love in a world that was geared towards those with power and influence. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? In our divided world, I think we need this again, more than ever. I love what Richard Raw says about Jesus. He says, Jesus did not come to change the mind of God about humanity. It didn't need changing. God has organically and inherently loved what God created from the moment God created it. Jesus came to change the mind of humanity about God. So many times, when I've invited people to to a meeting in church, people have very gingerly arrived and said they were waiting for a lightning bolt to strike them as they came through the door. So many times people have said that to me. You know, they expect God to strike them down for their own perceived evilness. I usually say to them that they've got the wrong God there. It was Zeus who had the lightning bolts and we should worship the God of love. So maybe one of the things we can do to help people discover who they are is invite them to a different, consider a different image of God. That God is not Primarily this stern lawgiver who condemns and excludes people who don't conform to God's holy standards. Rather, God is primarily a great lover who loves all her children unconditionally and wants their very best. And that the kingdom of heaven is within our grasp, here and available right now, which is, of course, the gospel of Jesus. So, can we do what Jesus did? Can we invite people 
to the table of fellowship and friendship? Can we welcome people the way that Jesus did? Can we accept all people to be God's children, no matter how different we all are? And can we affirm their capacity to bear God's image and reflect God's love, whoever they are and wherever they go? I think if the first disciples could, I think we can too. We can do our best to love people, really love people, with a Jesus kind of love. We can do our best to treat one another with compassion and dignity and grace and say, come and see. Come and experience for yourself the magnitude of God's love and discover who you really are. God's own beloved child. And so I finish with this prayer. Loving and eternal God, give us an interest that goes beyond our own well-being and inspire us to participate in a story that is much greater than our own little story. Help us to have the passion, the courage and the will to find ways to say to friends and others, come and see. Give us a real desire to help one another and discover and become who we really are. Amen.